Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, other than the lockout, how's your week been treating you? It's been good. Uh, the last couple of days have been weird. There's nothing going on. I'm like checking Twitter and there's nothing going on. So I got to get used to that a little bit. But boy, there was a flurry before that. Yeah, it was a little reminiscent of the trade deadline and how, you know, right. you're frantically refreshing Twitter for three days straight and then suddenly there's nothing. But at least around that time of year, you have actual baseball being played and to, and to look forward to that and all the players showing up with their new teams. And now it's just silence and people wondering how long this thing's going to go on yeah this is not going to be fun yeah but in the meantime we do have some fun things to discuss because it seemed like half the players in the league changed teams over the last two weeks Uh, so we have plenty to get to today um, and we have plenty of ideas to kind of keep us busy throughout the lockout so don't worry the baseball trade values podcast will not be locking out itself Uh, But with that being said, like I said, so much to get into, so let's just jump into it. Uh, Let's start with the Texas Rangers. We saw this huge flurry of free agent moves, and most of it was by teams that actually missed the playoffs in 2020, uh, excuse me, in 2021. And the Rangers were really at the forefront of that. So they signed four significant contracts and and two obvious huge deals in the Rangers signing Corey Seager to a 10-year, $325 million deal. And as well as Marcus Semyon to a seven-year, $175 million contract. And so I think both of those really blew past what anybody expected for either of those players. And maybe you assume there's a bit of a premium that the Rangers have to pay to get superstars to go play for a 60-win team. But it it kind of follows a general market trend that we're going to be talking about all throughout this episode of the top end of the market really got paid in this like last week rush up to the lockout deadline. And in a lot of cases, they got paid more than anybody really expected. Yes, they did. Uh, Seager is is one of them. You know, at the beginning of the year, I would have thought 10 and 320-ish um, would have been fine. But um, I was still surprised that he got this much at this year because his, his season was good but not great. So, um, it, yeah, that one was a bit of a stretch. Simeon was a bit of a stretch. And to your point, the Rangers, you know, and, and we're, well, I'm sure we'll talk about the Tigers as well with bias, but – you know, these, these teams that are sort of have been rebuilding and now want to sort of wave a flag and say, hey, we're not rebuilding anymore. Let's make a run. And they still need to convince these free agents to come to them over a big market team who has been in the playoffs. And so they have to overpay a little bit to get them to agree to it. It is an auction model after all. So the highest bidder wins. And if you don't have as much, don't have as many selling points, you have to go even higher. So that's point number one. Point number two is, um, you know, we know all, we've always known that star players have premiums. So when we build our model, we like, okay, here, we're sort of hitting it down the middle. Like we cover kind of the, you know, everybody in, in kind of aggregate, but we also know that we, yeah, we give a little extra to the star players because we've seen them get a little extra love, whether it be in money or trade value. And so I think we're seeing a few examples of it here. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And what do you, I think the the biggest difference here between Seeger and Semyon, and, and it's an obvious difference, and explains why one got seven years and one got ten years, is the age. Obviously, Seeger's a very young free agent. He's not even 28 yet, and so even if the bat hasn't been as consistent as it could have been, or if he hasn't been as healthy as he could have been, or whatever, you feel like there's more in the tank there. You feel like a 10-year commitment to a 27, 28-year-old. You know, it's it's not unreasonable by any means. But what it's, did you uh, go ahead? 
I was just going to say, and the Rangers know that he's probably not going to stick at shortstop once yeah. he get into his 30s. So they're probably thinking maybe they'll move him to third. But then they've got this other weird problem where they've got their top prospect, Josh Chung, is also a third baseman. So we're not sure how that's going to play out. Uh, but they do yeah. know that Seager's probably not going to stick at short. But so they've, they, they, my, I think my point is when you get into your 30s, it's a little bit easier to still have the bats and play at third. You think, you know, Beltre, for example, was, mm-hmm. was, you know, well, well into his 30s and still being productive at third base. So, and then he was on the Rangers, of course, all that time. So I'm sure that they're thinking, okay, well, even if he moves on for short, he'll still be a productive player. And so, you know, he'll, he'll make his money and he'll, but he'll be very productive for that time. And to the age point, you know, signing a guy at age 27 is a lot different than signing a guy in his 30s. Um, you're probably going up to, you know, in this case, you are going up to his age 36, 37 year um, uh, years. So they know he's going to tail off. So there's going to be surplus value in the front, negative value in the back. Hopefully it all works out. Mm-hmm. And contrasting that with Semyon, which he's 31 currently, and they signed him to a seven-year deal. So it takes both players through their age 38 season. But it, it, the Semyon deal just felt extra... It felt way longer than anybody expected it. I thought, it seemed like the median projection was in the five, maybe six-year range for Semyon. And maybe that seventh year is just what the Rangers had to tack on uh, to get him to sign there, especially mm-hmm. since he was the first chip to fall, uh, the first player to officially sign on with them. And so maybe he took that little extra push. But what it what seems problematic to me is that this is a guy who started out his career as a pretty serviceable player, but nothing special, then had a random, you know, six win, seven win season, whatever that was, and, and finished third in MVP voting, then struggled in 2020, and then obviously bounced back and finished third in MVP voting again in 2021. But he's on the wrong side of 30. He really only has two superb seasons, and he's a second baseman now. He's He could probably play, you know, a slightly below average to average shortstop today, but Two years from now, he's going to be second base only. And if he falls any further down the defensive spectrum, it just seems like there's a lot of room for this deal, a seven-year deal on a player like this. And a player who I love, I'm a huge Marcus Simeon fan, but it just seems like there's a lot of room for this one to go south. Yes, um, I would agree with that. Look, these are both overpays. Let's let's get that out of the way now. It's just a question of how much sort of premium you want to get, give to them. But one thing they both have in common is they're both very reliable. You mentioned Simeon's down year, but I... I I think there were some extracurricular. Uh, I, I don't know if he was injured in in that down year in between that sandwich year, um, but he's been very reliable. And now, basically, let's 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 summarize it this way: two of the last three years were close to MVP years, and he he brings his lunch pail to work every single day. Hard hardest worker, great character guy, great person. Yeah. You know, it's like you you know you're getting your money's worth. Is my point. And the same thing could be said for Seager. He could just he's very reliable every day. The bat's going to continue to play. So I think they wanted two guys they could count on if they were going to spend this much money. They feel good and confident that these are not like fly by night guys. These are guys you can really count on for the most part. Mm-hmm. And. I will add one other thing on Simeon that he was extremely pull happy during his strong 2021 season. And, you know, there have been articles written about how that might not age the best. And he's a pull happy guy who's he's athletic, but he's not necessarily fast. And so we'll have to see how that works, how that plays out in the new ballpark down there. Um, I I just have one more question here for you. Um, I I know in this episode, we don't want to be looking too far forward to the future because, you know, we got a couple months of episodes to fill up here and we can speculate at a later date. We have so much to cover in this one. But 
I just want to ask if you think the Corey Seager deal is an outlier and, you know, all these factors that we've discussed where, you know, the Rangers were bad and they want to get this guy to sign on. They're going to have to pay him that little extra bonus overpay for him. Um, but do you think that's an outlier or do you think that'll have a significant impact on Carlos Correa's market? Um, I think it will have a little bit of impact on Correa's market. Um, but the industry knows that, you know, Correa is obviously coming off a huge season. Um, but if you had done this a year ago, it, it would look totally different, which means he's got more volatility. He's had back issues and things like that. So, you know, he's not quite as, I'm going to say, reliable again as Seager. Um, but he's got the higher upside a little bit more than Seager because he could probably stick at shortstop longer. And, you know, he's just, he can put up a seven-win se- season, whereas Seager, you're looking at the three or four-win sort of typical season for him. So I do think he will get paid a lot, and he'll try to beat that number. But I don't think it's necessarily an apples-to-apples comparison. To your larger question, like, are we seeing, like, a new normal, if you will, in all of these overpays? I'm not sure we are yet because stars do get paid, and that's always true. You know, when Garrett Cole signed his big contract, that was on paper and overpay as well. But then you sort of say, well, he's a superstar. And then you sort of say, well, if they're planning on going to the playoffs every year, you're going to get that October bonus that we sometimes talk about. So you've got to factor that in. So there's, you can kind of see it, you know, squint a little bit, but you can kind of see why the overpays make sense for these guys, for the stars anyway. And then they sort of, in terms of roster construction, will then, it doesn't mean they're going to overpay for the middle level guys or the bench guys, you know, because you got to put it together a roster on a budget, right? So they've got to overpay a little bit to get the stars, especially if you're sort of on the, on the up and up on the come, like Texas and Detroit are. But then you still have to sort of figure out how to pay the rest of your roster, which means you're going to balance it with non-overpays, if you will, for the middle and lower tier. Um, that is still sort of the working hypothesis. I think once we sort of finish the off season, whenever that is, if we see overpays in the middle and lower tier, then we'll say, aha, we're underestimating it and we'll adjust the sort of dollar per war sort of calculations in our model. But right now, I don't think there's enough evidence to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to wrap up on the Rangers really quick. They also signed Cole Calhoun to a one-year deal. I don't think we need to go in-depth on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also picked up John Gray on a four-year $56 million contract. And I think that's... I'm not going to call it a steal. It isn't a steal. I think most people had Gray getting three years. But I think it's a really smart signing i think it's a really safe deal and i think once again we're left sitting here wondering why the rockies just what the rockies (laughs) are doing what what their plan was with john gray i mean clearly they didn't have one otherwise they would have either traded him at the deadline or extended him or offered in the qualifying offer and they did none of those three things and so now he walked for nothing um but i i like this deal a lot for them but it kind of and i'll let you give your bid on it too but it also just leads to this larger question of what is the plan for the Rangers even? Because they've put a lot of money out there now, but it's a lot of money on top of a 60-win team without too much foundation in place. This isn't a 60-win team that has two top prospects who just debuted in 2021 and are going to take the next step forward next year. It's There's some names on that team, but not a whole lot to love. I mean, before all these moves, their best player was a, probably Adolis Garcia, and he had like a 285 OBP last year. Uh, yeah. Nate Lowe is is a decent first baseman, but Isaiah Kiner-Falefa is a good shortstop, but there's just not a whole lot else in place here. And I have no issue with teams spending to get better. And you mentioned a couple prospects, Jace Young being the top one there. But 
it seems like they have to have a lot more in the tank if they're going to contend even not even just looking to 2022 it seems like it's going to take a couple more signings in this maybe not in the Corey Seager realm but in this John Gray kind of tier of sizable contributors for them to even compete in 2023 Um, yeah okay so a couple of points here first of all just from a pure pure valuation standpoint i don't think john gray was um you know it's close enough to fair it's a little bit of overpay according to our numbers four years we we have about 49 as fair value and they paid 56 but if you do year by year that's off by one or two it's not a big deal um and if you looked at sort of the qo decision that the rockies made you know his his aav that we had sort of based on our modeling was he was in the sort of the 14 million-ish range, 13, 14 for one year. And if you figure the 18 million or so as the QO, then he's a little shy of that, right? So he's not going to, so the Garaki's decision to not QO him um, kind of made rational sense from that standpoint. So that's point number two. Um, he also fits the model for the Rangers that they've been doing, as we know, the last couple of years with Lance Lynn and Mike Miner and Kyle Gibson, signing these veteran, you know, guys who, probably have more in the tank and you know in, in the rangers rebuilding years they they flipped obviously all three of those guys for good returns um and in this case they're probably looking at him as sort of a, a mid-rotation mainstay now to your larger point of are the rangers going to compete yes they have a lot of holes um and they know that um but they've also got a lot of prospects coming um you know their farm is they've got josh i don't know if you say is it young or young um is their top prospects. They've also got Al Leiter, their top draft pick from last year. They're kind of their two top ones. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a lot of mid-tier guys that they've picked up through trades with the Yankees and other teams. And then there's a whole long sort of tail of mid to lower guys. So they're probably going to do some consolidation trades, I would imagine, especially now that Semyon and Seager are in the fold for seven to 10 years. That middle infield is blocked. So guys that you see in their farm who are second baseman shortstop types are probably trade candidates. So they're probably going to look to move some of those guys to maybe more major league ready pieces to, to start uh, populating their the rest of their roster. they got a lot of work to do, but they have some ammunition with which to do it. I've seen a lot of proposals and just general speculation on a Isaiah Kiner-Falefa to the Yankees for Joey Gallo framework, and that's that's a fun one to think about. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely discuss that on a later episode, but yeah, yeah, uh, I think we're good on the Rangers for now. Um, let's move into the other team that really opened up the checkbooks, even despite finishing out of the playoffs in 2021, and that's the New York Mets. Uh, so Stephen Matz's agent caused a ripple effect here that I don't think he anticipated. I wonder I wonder how Stephen Matz is feeling about all of this. Um, <laughs> He's a hero. So, uh, apparently. He <laughs> should be unsung a hero. hero in New York. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, for listeners who don't know the context there, um, Steve Cohen, Mets owner, uh, was visibly upset on Twitter about negotiations with Steven Matz when he ended up signing with the Cardinals, and we will talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, the Mets thought they had a good shot at him, and he apparently didn't give them a last chance to re-up their offer or something like that. And so in the next 24, 36 hours, um, Cohen just went nuts and opened the checkbook. And first he signed Eduardo Escobar to a two-year deal. Then he signed Mark Canna to a two-year deal. And you're thinking, okay, that's that's nice. It's nothing huge, but that's nice. Then later that night, he signed Starling Marte, to a four-year, $78 million deal. And then you're thinking, okay, we're moving here. And then within the next day or two, Max Scherzer was inked to a three-year, $130 million deal. Um, so w- we can start anywhere that you want in in those four names, John. I think 
I don't think we have too much to say about Eduardo Escobar or Mark Canna. They're both good, solid regulars, solid depth piece types. Um, so do you want to start with either Marte or Scherzer? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, as everyone knows, Steve Cohen is the by far the richest owner in baseball. And the Mets are his kind of toy, right? So, and he mm-hmm. wants to win. He was a Mets fan growing up. So, um, he, you know, this is pocket change to him. It may sound like a lot of money to normal people like us, but this is like not even a rounding error. And when, you, when you're worth 13, 14 billion dollars or whatever it is, you know, this is this is nothing. So, um, he, so he can do that. And I was sort of, I was listening to you as you were talking, you kept saying he, as in Cohen, as if Billy Epler wasn't in the room or whatever, <laughs> you know, because like, but but you're right in a way, because it, it really, it, reports seem to implicate that Cohen himself has been doing a lot of the negotiating, which is mm-hmm. kind of unusual for an owner. And maybe because Billy Epler only just took the job a couple of weeks yeah. ago, you know, so who knows, but um but I do think he was probably heavily involved and he just, like you said, just opened the checkbook and it doesn't really matter. He's just like, get me my guys, I'll pay whatever. So, and Scherzer himself was like blown away. Like, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if, any rational person would see this clearly. Scherzer is an awesome pitcher, clearly a future Hall of Famer, wonderful pitcher. You want him to lead your rotation, but that's an overpay, no matter how you slice mm-hmm. it on paper. It's clearly an overpay for a star. Um, and so, okay, everybody just sort of nods and says, all right, he can do it, so he'll do it. Um, I, I would say it's not quite as extreme with Marte, but, you know, he needed this, he needed him. The center field market was pretty thin. Marte was one of the yeah. only guys on the board. There were a lot of other sort of bidders for him, I'm sure, that needed center fielders. Yankees, Phillies come to mind. Um, so he just overpaid for him, too. And that's all it was. And so I don't think it's necessarily oh my god the new normal for all starting pitchers is 43 million dollars i think it's i guess it's steve cohen going nuts like you said Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i think scherzer fits pretty comfortably into that you know justin verlander and nelson cruz kind of tier where it's obviously the model is going to give him a pretty hefty aging curve because he's 37 right now and this is a three-year deal it's going to take him through age 40 pitchers just don't hold up that long but he's kind of his own thing like i mean verlander obviously did just have that big injury but up until the injury he was rolling along just like he always had been and nelson cruz seems to just keep churning out 120 wrc plus seasons every year and so it's like these guys kind of break the aging model and not not to say that the aging curve is wrong or anything or that we should fully buy in or not to say also that even if adjusting the aging curve which i'm sure you did um even if adjusting the aging curve I'm not saying that that makes this a completely fair deal. It's probably still an overpay, but it's well within, it's within reason when you step back from everything and and say there's one Max Scherzer on the market and this is one avenue for the Mets to get way better. And if you're Cohen and you are just, like you said, if it is just a rounding error, just go ahead and get it done. You're not going to quibble over, oh, this deal isn't fair value. It would be fair value if we went three years and 110. We need to quibble over that last 20 million. If you're if you're Cohen and your expectations are sky high and the money doesn't matter as much to you, you're just going to go do it. Yes, absolutely. And I'm, you make a really interesting point about the aging curves. And, and when I was looking at the numbers, um, so <clears throat> yes, in a normal, for a normal 37, 38, 39-year-old, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of injury risk. There's going to be a lot of sort of expectation of performance decline but then you have these kind of outliers like scherzer like verlander well verlander it's tjs but you know there are guys who really keep themselves in good shape or maybe their their fundamentals are so good and their pitching efficiency is so good um that they'll just keep going 
Now, having said that, I would not be surprised if Scherzer at some point started to break down because time is undefeated. He's going to, father time is going to catch up with him eventually, right? Um, but we haven't seen that yet. So you have to kind of take it on an individual basis. There's also a little bit of survivorship bias here going on because you don't see a lot of elite 38, 39-year-olds, right? So the model uh, aging curves in general take that to mean, okay, well, you're going to be almost done when you're that age or done. Um, but then the, the guys who are the survivors say, well, no, I'm not done. You know what I mean? They're, they're, um, it doesn't necessarily apply to, to them as much because for whatever reason, genetics, good conditioning, what have you, um, they can defy that. Tom Brady is obviously in football. And he's playing well into his 40s. is still at an elite level. So, and, and there's, a, I don't want to get too far into this, but there's been a lot of, um, I would say a quiet revolution in nutrition and keeping yourself in shape. And, you know, a lot of the elite guys have now taken to these sort of methods of, of staying in shape longer. And so, so with the end result being they can kind of play at an elite level longer. And I think Scherzer is another good example of that. So anyway, he's an outlier. And um, in terms of both of his, in, his injury risk, his aging curves, and of course the amount of money he's getting paid. Yeah. And I think, I think you made a good point there with the survivorship bias where, you know, you look at some of these, uh, basically for Scherzer to hit the free agent market and, and Verlander to a lesser extent, but especially Scherzer to hit the free agent market at this age, it's because he just signed a mega deal. And at the time, the mega deal was kind of in question because, oh, it's going to take him through his 37 season. We don't know what to expect from him at that point. And, and when you're looking at it from that standpoint, you can compare him to Patrick Corbin or Steven Strasburg or John Lester or these other guys that signed lengthy. Uh, and, and none of those guys are quite up to the level of Scherzer, but they all signed these lengthy free agent contracts. Or I, I believe in Strasburg's case, it might have been an extension. But either way, they signed these sizable lengthy deals. And all three of those guys, well, Lester, we've already kind of seen what happened. He came out on the other side of his deal and he was really left as a back-end guy at best, and he's been floating around on one-year deals every season. Uh, but it seems like Corbin and Strasburg are probably going to be pretty close to retirement by the end of their deals. And so, yeah, this is just one of those guys, one of those freak, unique cases that he pitched well throughout the entire deal, and now that's that, that means he's more likely to be effective throughout age 38, 39, 40. But that doesn't mean it's a guarantee by any means just because he made it to age 37 still successful. Nolan Ryan pitched into his 40s, and he was yes. still very, very, I mean, I have to go back and do some research on how elite he was, but he was up there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it was a different time, obviously, and who knows how fast hard he was throwing. They didn't measure things as much as it, but he's another outlier. But most of the other guys of his generation were done by their mm -hmm. late 30s, right? So every now and then you get one of those guys, and you just have to say, okay, well, to some degree the model applies, to some degree it doesn't. It's an individual case-by-case -case basis. Mm-hmm. And then I want to go back to Marte just really quick. Um, I, I think there was, this was, again, it wasn't a huge surprise, but I saw a lot of people that were more projecting him for a three-year deal. Um, but he gets the fourth year here. It seems like yet again, they're just, the Mets are willing to go that extra, extra distance to get their guy. And like you mentioned, the center field market was so thin, especially after the Byron Buxton extension, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. Um, but Marte is an interesting case to me with that fourth year where he's going to be trying to find it right now i believe he's 33 right now so he'll be 36 30 yeah he just turned 33 so he'll be 37 in the final year of that deal and that's kind of scary a 37 year old center fielder whose game relies a lot around his speed um you wonder how many steps he can lose in those four years and mm -hmm. how viably he's going to be able to patrol center field but it's this weird uh, kind of catch 22 case with Marte in particular 
because he is hyper athletic. He is he is something to watch on a baseball field. He's just explosive. He's got all this energy. He's ripped. He, he's he's an incredible athlete. And so you figure, okay, an athlete like that, maybe he has a good chance at aging a little bit better. But it seems like he doesn't have much room to fall if he does shift to a corner outfield spot because he isn't really a power guy. And so if we're talking, he loses a step, so he's not really a speed guy, and that forces him into left field, and he's not really a power guy, it, it seems like there's there's a cliff there that he could pretty easily fall off of if, if aging doesn't treat him too well. Absolutely. I'm also a little bit worried that he's coming off his best year ever. Like if you look at his fan graphs page, you say, Oh my God, 5.5 F4. But you go back and say, well, well, did he ever do that before? 1.3, 3.0, 3.6, 1.4. You know, it's ones and twos and threes. It's like, and all of a sudden there's a 5.5 at age 32. So like, is that sustainable or is he going to sort of revert to his mean kind of as a three war player? That's probably more likely. He's probably not going to be stealing bases like crazy. Like he was, as he starts to lose a step. Maybe he moves to left field as he gets into his later years. Um, but hopefully he'll, his bat is still quick enough that that can still play. But, I mean, Lorenzo Cain comes to mind as a comp, and he's been sort of steadily in decline, right? And he's an older center fielder. He's not terrible, but he's definitely losing steps each year. So I suspect a similar result with Marte. Yeah, that's a pretty good comp. Cain has, has remained useful, but... He's not the player he used to be, obviously, and, and I could see Marte taking a similar path, and then it's just a question of, okay, how good is he in 2022, 2023 to kind of offset for that step back that he's pretty expected to take here? Yeah. So I think this was an overpay if you sort of keep the regression in mind mm -hmm. and the aging in mind and may not be repeatable in mind. And But, you know, it's the Mets and Cohen's checkbook. It's not that he's not going to carry overpaid by 10 billion. <laughs> you know, may, you know, if things changed later and they wanted to trade him down the road in the back half of his contract, it's kind of probably not going to be pretty, but it, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's keep rolling here. Um, let's go to the Tigers. We talked about Javier Baez briefly earlier. Uh, but the Tigers landed him on a six-year, $140 million contract. That's their second big move of the offseason after signing Eduardo Rodriguez. And I guess we can lump the Tucker Barnhart trade in there. But those are the two really big ones. And I've, I saw some really mixed reactions to this one on Twitter. Obviously, Javier Baez is a pretty divisive player. And a lot of people were pretty surprised that he got six years. I, I, to me, this is a lesser extent of the Rangers situation where it was pretty clear that the Tigers were willing to spend this offseason. They really needed a middle infield solution, and with so many shortstops on the open market, why not? Why not just open the checkbooks and spend right now while you can, especially since guys like Baez and Story and Correa and Seager are all younger than the average free agent. So it makes sense, even if they're not division title contenders in 2022, these guys are going to be in their primes for the next handful of years. So it makes sense, um, but it was a bit of a surprise that the Tigers ended up with Baez specifically. They were pretty connected to Correa, and that seemed like plan A, but I wonder if he just priced himself out of their market with that strong 2021 season. Um, and so they kind of ended up with a consolation here in, in Baez, who he's a quality player, but we discussed at length last offseason just how tricky of a player he is to evaluate and to kind of bet on long term with, with his plate discipline issues and just how much he strikes out. Um, so, so a bit of a weird fit here, but they get their guy, obviously a plus defender, obviously crazy upside here. Um, electric player, 
brings a lot to the to the clubhouse, I'm sure. Uh, but what are your thoughts here, and what do the values say about this deal? Oh my God, <clears throat> we really have to squint to see if this to, to, the numbers don't make sense. Um, because by all sort of objective measures, he's not worth 140 over six. Um, you know, his sort of baseline is worth closer to 100. You can give him an extra sort of, okay, for the, uh, because the Tigers are going to overpay because the shortstop market, um, you know, he's, he, you know, after that, you don't have a whole lot of options. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, okay, you give him a little bump in that and you end up, we ended up with like 118, but you're still pretty far from 140. And the Tigers are not Steve Cohen's team. So their ownership is not as rich. Um, so, you know, I think the, you know, he's he's obviously well known in the industry as having play discipline issues to your point. And even though he had a very sort of successful year in 2021, you know, K rate is still 33.6. Walk rate is still 5.1. That's, you know, the, he is who he is, right? He's going to strike out a ton. You're, you know, this is an overpay. I'm, I'm sorry, but this is an overpay. He's clearly got a track record. We know who he is. Yes, he's an exciting player when he, when he, when he runs into one. It's fantastic. Base running sometimes, you know, he'll make the flashy plays. And, but, but he's not... Uh, He's not the king, the same kind of player you can count on, like the steady Eddies, like Seager and Simeon, where they talk about. He's going to be up and down a bit. He's going to strike out a ton. But okay, <laughs> you know, I guess the Tigers don't mind that. Yeah, I could see this one going kind of south. I mean, mm-hmm. he's got the defensive versatility, and he's got that energy, that athleticism. That means, you know, maybe he ages a little better than most, but... It, it seems re- reasonable to expect this to go kind of the way of Dan Ugla's deal in Atlanta, where, you know, the, just, just can't, can't keep the other skills intact enough to put up with the strikeouts and to remain a productive player in spite of them. Yeah. That's a good point. You're like, he, he's not going to change his pr- approach at this point of his career. Mm-hmm. I doubt, right. He is who he is. Right. So, so those other sort of things have to sort of <clears throat> counter that. Right. And if those things go down, his whole thing goes down. Right. So, mm-hmm. He's not a three-war player if, 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 you know, if he stops hitting home runs or stops playing good defense. He's a two or a one, you know, and that's that's going to be painful on the back end of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I could still see them, you know, being aggressive, making one last push, pairing him with a guy like Correa. It, it, it's harder to, harder to see a natural landing spot for Correa now unless he's either going back to Houston or, or the Dodgers or picking up a guy with that kind of a – reputation and with the, the bad blood between their franchise and Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the Tigers still have room in the budget for a Correa and it makes a little more sense, I guess, but it, it doesn't, that wouldn't even justify this. It's, it's, it's weird. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Because then, you know, then you got to discount him for positions because he's, he, yeah. he's a second baseman on a shortstop. So yeah. you know, that's worth less in the market. So either way you slice it, it's an overpay. And mm-hmm. I don't, think we have enough data to say oh yes they're all overpays like i was saying earlier and therefore you know we need to adjust our model i Mm -hmm. i think this is the tigers saying hey other free agents we're in business now come come play with us and you know they're they're trying to make a statement here yeah okay now let's head off to the next best starting pitching market uh, next best starting pitching options on the market um and, and these two kind of compare pretty easily so uh, Robbie Ray left Toronto to go sign with the Mariners. It's a five-year, $115 million deal with an opt-out after the third season. And pretty much around that same time, the Blue Jays signed Kevin Gosman to a five-year, $110 million deal. So very similar uh, similar contracts in terms of length and value. 
Yeah, which is a bit surprising on the face just because Robbie Ray just won the Cy Young and Kevin Gosman had a pretty rough second half last season. But you go a little deeper. Robbie Ray's contract with that opt-out adds some value. The no-trade clause adds some value. So it's it's a $5 million difference from 115 to 110, but in actuality, his deal has some more uh, valuable additions to it than Gosman's does. And and plus, both of these guys... Oh, and, and not to mention the draft pick uh, that the Mariners will lose for signing Ray, whereas Gosman already accepted a QO, and so the Giants couldn't offer him one this offseason. So no draft pick compensation for Gosman. Um, so maybe that played a role in the Blue Jays deciding to pick Gosman over Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also... Both of these guys are pretty similar in terms of their career paths and their level of success over the last handful of seasons if, if you look past just 2021. And so it makes sense that they get pretty similar deals. There's some risk involved in both of them, and there's some pretty massive upside in both of them. So um, I guess I'll just start off with asking, which of these two guys do you take at this price value? Which one is your preference? Well, our model says Gosman. Um, they it thinks it's more reliable. It's actually a, a, a fair value. We have him uh, slightly over. We have 1.9 in surplus, which means it's pretty close to fair value. He's not as flashy as as uh, Ray in terms of like strikeouts and you know winning the Cy Young, but he's a solid two-ish, kind of on the bubble of one and a two, right? Um, so he's gonna he's gonna I think gonna be more reliable. You know, at least he has been uh, for the last couple of years, I think. Anyway, we have him at fair value is 111.9, 110 without, without any adjustment. So I think that's that's a good deal for the Blue Jays. Whereas I think Robbie Ray, uh, our model has him as in the, let me double check here. That's a bit of an overpay, especially with loss of the draft pick. Um, but again, the Mariners are in a similar position as we just talked about Texas and, and Detroit, wanting to make a statement. They got plenty of money. They're on the upswing. You know, and they want to attract other free agents, so they're going to overpay a little bit more for Robbie Ray. It's interesting though that they, you know, they know they're losing a draft pick, but they've got one of the strongest farms in baseball, so maybe that didn't matter to them as much. Anyway, fair value for him is 96 with a Cy Young and sort of a positional sort of say, okay, he's a he's an ace, he's potential ace. You know, this we call it 105.9 is his fair value, and they paid 115, so they overpaid by about nine. But again, that's not that much when you look at it on a, on a per year basis. It's like one or two. So it's within the realm of reason. So it's not going to you know, break any banks. And they've got plenty of money there. So um, I think he's got a little bit more upside than Gosman, but he is just a little bit more volatile in terms of his year by year. Yeah, I think that's a pretty safe way to put it, that Gosman probably isn't winning any Cy Youngs, especially now that he's heading mm-hmm. to Toronto, heading to the, the AL East. But he does just feel like a safer mid-rotation type at worst. Um, he did have some struggles last year, and, and you know he's a fastball splitter guy. And during his struggles last year, he was toying with adding a changeup. And it's like, that's, that's not the most <laughs> traditional pitch mix you'll ever see. And that's maybe not the best sign that when a guy with his two pitches, his next... His next move it, when things start to go south is to add a changeup. That, that just feels a little off. But he righted the ship. He was pretty effective, you know, at the end of the season. And I, I think he's a pretty safe bet for the Blue Jays. He's been a, he's been a moderately durable arm for the last few years of his career. Um, and, and Ray has had a few injury bugs here and there. And he's obviously had just complete lack of control at times in the 2020 season. Uh, first half with Arizona, he just could not find the zone at all. Um, and so that risk is obviously there. 
Uh, but I, I personally am pretty confident in the changes that Toronto made with him because it wasn't just, oh, look at this 2021 season that he had. He was pretty effective for them when they acquired him in the second half of 2020 as well. It seems like there's a legitimate mechanical change that he made there and that he should be able to take with him to Seattle. Um, the one other point that I want to bring up here that I think gets overlooked a little bit is just the, the Blue Jays being in Toronto, in Canada. Um, and I think uh, there's there haven't been any rumors that I've seen to say that, oh, Robbie Ray just didn't like Canada, didn't want to go back there long term, or that in particular Kevin Gosman did. But I think that's a factor that gets kind of overlooked when discussing the Blue Jays and their free agents and guys that leave to go elsewhere. You know, maybe Marcus Simeon didn't want to spend the next seven years dealing with visa issues and stuff like <laughs> that, or... Or same thing with Robbie Ray for the next five years. Maybe Kevin Gosman does like Canada for some reason. I don't know. Uh, but they're in kind of a unique spot. And I think that can affect a lot of their uh, free agent successes and failures. And so yeah. I, I think that's worth mentioning here. It, it is. I, I think it's a fair point. I think both uh, Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon were in lesser leverage, lower leverage positions a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Simeon didn't get offered a QO and they weren't sure if he was going to stick short, so he took a one-year deal in Toronto. Robbie Ray was coming up a terrible year. Uh, he had been traded to Toronto and he thought, okay, well, maybe they're onto something here. So he stuck with them for $8 million. And so mm-hmm. then they both had great years and restored their value to the point where they could go wherever they wanted to and maybe they wanted to be in the continental U.S. I don't know, uh, for whatever personal reasons. Maybe that was a factor. But I do also just want to give a hint. You wrote an article about the Toronto pitching um kind of operation about a year Mm -hmm. or so ago and they were buying low at the time on Matts and ray and a couple other guys and it turned out very well so they whatever they did it seemed to have worked i don't know if you had any further insight into that it was i I don't know if there was some massive overarching theme to be taken with that but we have kind of seen some other teams starting to try and replicate that we we saw very early on in this offseason the Dodgers signing Andrew Haney, I believe that was also an $8 million deal, mm-hmm. uh, very reminiscent of the Robbie Ray deal. And that's not to say that, oh, the, the Rays were, uh, excuse me, the Rays, the, the Blue Jays were the uh, first team to discover that you can pay for kind of one-year deal for a project starting pitcher with upside and it can pay off. Like that's obviously, that's nothing new to the game. Um, the Blue Jays rotation last year was just like a lot of those guys in one spot. And it obviously worked out pretty well with Steven Matz and Robbie Ray. Didn't work out nearly as well with Tanner Roark or Ross Stripling. So you're going to have your hits and your misses. But on the uh, on the aggregate, it worked out pretty well for the Blue Jays. And I, I think it makes me think a little bit more highly of their development and pitching staff and, and all of that. And make me just a little more confident in the arms that do go there. And now they're obviously building a pretty reliable rotation between the Jose Brios trade and extension. And then the Kevin Gosman deal. And they still have Hyunjin Ryu there. And so I, I think they have a pretty good thing going there. Alec Manoa and Nate Pearson on the way. Um, I, I like what they're doing, and I, I think I think a little bit more highly of their pitching staff, their development team, than I used to. Yeah, and it's interesting when you think, you know, the first team that comes to mind when I think of pitching development is Cleveland because they've got a machine there. But, uh, you know, the head executive in Toronto was an ex-Cleveland guy, so maybe right. there's something there that's kind of connective tissue. You also think mm-hmm. of the Rays, but now I'd say Toronto's starting to develop pitching very well. And, you know, um, 
the other one that comes to mind is the Giants have been good at sort of the buy low, sort of restore their value kind of guy. Obviously, mm-hmm. they had four of those guys last year, and it worked with Gosman, Discofani, and, and Alex Wood. And so, so they're sort of repeating their formula. And that's not so much of a development point as more of a sort of a, hey, let's buy low in these guys, and, and we'll work some magic with them for one year. And it's not mm-hmm. a long-term necessarily thing, but but they're good at doing that. Yeah, and, and we're not going to get to any of it because they weren't the biggest additions, but I guess now we can use an opportunity to talk about the Giants really quick of they brought back Wood, they brought back Desclafani, and they brought in Alex Cobb, who's also kind of in that mold. And mm-hmm. so they are they seem to be zagging while everyone else zigs. Everyone else is going for any chance that they can possibly get at this starting pitcher turning into a number one, number two type guy. And the Giants seem content to just take all these guys that are more in the three, four, five mold, and but they know that they're going to provide them reliable innings and yeah. it worked for them last year they have logan webb as their clear number one and mm-hmm. and they obviously lost out on gosman here in free agency but it seems like they're pretty content just backfilling the rest of those innings with steady eddy types that's right okay let's move on to the next uh, kind of the next starting pitcher on the list and this one was weird to everyone i think i don't know if anybody quite understands the fit here uh, Marcus Stroman to the Cubs on a three-year, $71 million deal. Uh, so he gets two years less than, you know, he was kind of lumped in with Gosman and Ray all offseason. It was pretty clear he was third in that group of three. Uh, he just doesn't have the strikeout rates that the other two have. And, and you know, he's a quality pitcher and he's a reliable arm and he's maybe had a better, more consistent track record of success than those two. But as we, as I just mentioned, teams are paying for that kind of frontline potential and, Stroman kind of has a 2-3 ceiling because he doesn't have that swing and miss. He's always going to be so reliant on his team's defense. Uh, But now he goes to the Cubs on this weird three-year deal. It has an opt-out after the second year, and so maybe that played a big role here. Maybe that's kind of the plan is to opt out. Um, But it's just weird. Uh, I don't know what to make of it. It seemed like there were many teams left that were better fits for him, both from his perspective and from the team's perspective. It's, It's weird that this is the largest contract he could get i'm not sure i just don't understand it okay (laughs) i'm with you let's break it down so from a valuation perspective it looks like an overpay to me um like plain vanilla value is 58.3 for three years you give him a bonus for being a star not really a star but sort of a you know better than average pitcher that brings it up to 64.1 so it's not that far away from 71 it's you're down by about seven so year basis you're one okay squint and you can see it okay Mm -hmm. it's an overpay but not that terrible um the Cubs strategy though is what i'm wondering about here because everyone thought they were rebuilding they had a fire sale with darvish and everybody else last year and like okay now they're not rebuilding there are they competing again they kept cal hendricks they haven't traded Contreras. everyone thought they would so maybe they're seeing like an opportunity in the NL Central, which is still not the strongest division in baseball. You got the Brewers and the Cardinals as your main competition. Maybe they're seeing an opening there. Maybe they're thinking, oh, with the new CBA, there's going to be 14 playoff teams now or 12 or whatever instead of 10. And so maybe they can sneak in there. So and, you know, they are the Cubs. They have a fan base that's very loyal and they're loyal back to them. So they want to at least put a representative product out there. That last point is probably the most, you know, I think probably the, the, the one I'm sort of going to hang my hat on. It's a represent, representative pro, uh, prospect. They don't want to go through like a lot of lean years of rebuilding. I think they want to show that they can try to get there faster. I know their farm is still like 
you know, their best prospects are in the sort of the lower minors. And so it's going to take a while. So maybe they're going to do what, maybe they're following the Giants model. Maybe they're, you know, going to try to compete while their best prospects are sort of bubbling up the system. So all I got. Yeah, the, the I'll clarify the part that doesn't, I'm, I'm not thinking he should have gotten significantly more money. I just thought he would go for a similar type contract as Gosman and Ray, a little lower AAV than they got, but that similar four or five year deal of, you know, 18 to 20 million a year, that seemed like a more natural fit for him. I, I don't understand what he gains by opting out of the second, after two years, I'm pretty sure, yeah, he'll be a 32 year old at that point, I think. Um, and, and, you know, 32 year old who doesn't strike out many guys and, is he really going to opt out of the potential $21 million on that third year? I, I don't know. And then from the Cubs perspective, it, it's not a tradable contract really. It's because of the higher AAV. So there, it's not really in this situation of, Oh, we have this money lying around. We know we're still kind of building to go forward. Maybe things work out. If they don't, we can flip him. That's not really what it feels like here. I don't know mm-hmm. how Stroman's going to get any surplus value here to be traded. Um, and it's not like the Cubs have a fantastic infield or outfield defense right now. And they also signed Jan Gomes. And you figure, you know, Gomes isn't a star, but he's he was the best free agent catcher on the market by a wide margin. So if he's signing somewhere, isn't he signing somewhere to be the starter? Like, mm-hmm. would, would he really pick the Cubs as a backup over multiple other destinations where I'm sure he could have been the starter? So, so you figure they probably are trading Wilson Contreras. I don't know what to make of it at all. I mean, yeah, maybe it's too early to tell. Maybe they got some other yeah. moves that they haven't made yet that are. It's all going to become clearer later. That's all I, I yeah. can figure. Um, because yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Are you re- rebuilding or you're not? Because <laughs> everyone mm-hmm. thought they were, and they've got so many holes in their roster and no help coming internally necessarily that you think they're not going to compete. But then they start to make these moves. Okay, you build two holes, but you're still a long way away. So I don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I mean, there's. Uh, I could maybe wrap my mind around something where they're kind of preemptively replacing Kyle Hendricks, you know, signing Stroman, who's a, a similar similar archetype of pitcher to Hendricks, and then they're going to flip Hendricks later in the offseason. But I don't know how much sense that makes. Hendricks is not at the peak of his value, nowhere near it. He just had a pretty rough year in 2021, and you're paying Stroman that much more than Hendricks is making. It would make more sense if it was the other way around. I I, I don't know. (laughs) I I guess we will just have to wait and see with them because it looks like a really incomplete picture at this point. Right. Okay. Uh, now I think we can start moving a little bit quicker. We have a couple of players, a couple of high-end players re-signing with their teams. First of all, Chris Taylor back to the Dodgers on a four-year, $60 million guarantee. There were reports that he had higher offers elsewhere, but he just loved the fit with the Dodgers so much he wanted to come back. They obviously wanted him back. He's a perfect fit for their roster. They use him very well, um, just to, all over the field. And it's just a, it's just a perfect fit. I don't know if if it's worth it for him to go elsewhere just for a few extra million. Yeah, no, and it's a fair deal. We have him at 57, basically, and he got 60. So, you know, for a year, it's right on. So, and he likes it there. So uh, I have no <laughs> no qualms about this one whatsoever. It makes sense from the Dodgers' point of view. He got paid fair value. He's not a superstar. So now you're, you're now we're going down to sort of the middle tier, sort of. I mean, yeah, he had a great year, but he, I don't think anyone sees him as a superstar. I, I just think he's a really good, versatile player. And that has value. I mean, we saw, 
you know, back in the Zobrist years, you know, um, he had value and finally the industry caught up with that. So I think Chris Taylor is a similar example to that. Um, so it just, just makes a lot of sense from every angle you can look at. Yeah. And Taylor himself, he had a bit of a down second half, but obviously kind of rebounded with a huge postseason. And I've seen a lot of comparisons to that Zobris deal. I believe the Zobris deal was four years and 56 million. Um, it seems like pretty general consensus that teams wouldn't sign a guy like that to that deal. Um, because I believe, I believe Zobrist was in his age, like 33 or 34 yeah, season at the time of that contract. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of a one-time thing because Zobrist was such a special player and because the Cubs were in this special situation here. Um, so, so that's not necessarily the kind of precedent setting contract. It, it's kind of along the lines of the Cubs or Rollis Chapman trade where it's, it's the exception to the rule, not the rule itself. Um, but, it, but it makes sense that Taylor would get in that neighborhood. And, and yeah, and I'm pretty much like you said, it's, it's a good fit for him. Not going to quibble about it. No qualms. Okay. Um, then kind of along those lines is the angels re-signing Rysel Iglesias to a four-year deal. Um, this one, it caught me a little off guard just how highly he was valued this offseason, but I guess it makes sense as being the one true lockdown arm on the market. It's not the strongest relief market we've ever had. Um, so he gets a four-year, $58 million deal. Um, and he They did offer him the qualifying offer, uh, so there were draft pick implications for any other team that signed him, but so ultimately he goes back to the Angels, and they have had their pitching issues. They've been well-documented in recent history. Um, so it makes sense for them to commit to who was a pretty reliable arm, but I don't know. It just feels like a lot of money for a, I don't think anybody's calling him an elite reliever. Are they? It's, I, I don't know. What, what do the values say on this? The one? values say this is actually an underpay and uh, we have him at hmm. 63.9 against 58. So it was a little, little bit of surplus there. I mean, he's coming off of a terrific year. When you really dig into the numbers, you're like, Whoa, <laughs> I didn't realize it was that good. Um, and he's been pretty consistent. So, um, and if you look at the sort of the market comps, I mean, um, Liam Hendricks' deal come to mind. I mean, that's, you know, what did he get? 456? I'm trying to remember Liam Hendricks' deal. His deal was weird, wasn't it? It was like oh, yeah, 39 with the, uh, it was something weird like that. So, yeah, it's because they had an op- they had an option year for four, but that was basically to, to get the AAV down. So, really, yeah. it was... Uh, yeah, it was a four-year deal for all intents and purposes for, I think, 54 or 50, something in that range. Um, mm-hmm. So so he basically got 13 or 14 AAV. Um, and Iglesias, this is a little bit higher, but you could argue that the Angels needed him, to your point about them just needing pitching. Um, mm-hmm. So I could see that. But on paper, the way our model sort of crunches the numbers, it really likes him. So we think he's mm-hmm. valuable. So uh, that one, not a surprise. Now, our, our reliever model is not totally perfect, and we're still checking it against uh, how this does. And over the course of the offseason, we'll review everything and say, okay, is it is it in the is it in the? Do we need any tweaks? Uh, but so far, so good. Um, I, I think anyway. So this one's a little bit um, uh, of an underpay, but we'll see how that shakes out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that Liam Hendricks deal comes out to it's it's three years guaranteed but the fourth year is a 15 million dollar club option with a 15 million buyout mm. i think but yeah the buyouts deferred so it's a weird so it gets 15 either thing. way which means yeah it's really a four-year deal so yeah it's really four years 54 million um which strikes me as odd that iglesias gets gets the same or gets more than that excuse me 
um, just because it, it felt like Hendricks was more dominant at the time of the deal. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's that's some bias there, just because I was watching him <laughs> in those seasons much more closely than I've watched Rysel Iglesias lately. Because looking over Rysel's numbers, they're they're pretty consistent. I mean, he had some issues in 2019, and in 2018, the FIP didn't really back up the ERA. But beyond those two little blips, he's been really good, really consistently good. Um, and and if know, you look I, at his WPA... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, his, this year he was phenomenal, and and teams love that because that means mm-hmm. he's really doing his job in high leverage situations. You know, and yeah. that's that's a factor in our model. Mm-hmm. All right, so maybe maybe it makes more sense than I thought it did at first glance. Okay. Um, I'm I'm interested to so so for context, I usually don't check out the values prior to us recording these episodes. I like to kind of be surprised a little bit and kind of, kind of, I don't know, think ahead of what I expect. Uh, the Marlins signing Avisel Garcia to, I believe, yeah, it's a $53 million four-year deal uh, with a 2026 club option as well. I, if I had to guess, I'd guess this was an overpay by the model. And you are right. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Sweet. It, yeah. It felt like one at the time it was announced, um, not maybe not an egregious overpay, and and you know maybe there's a bit of a Marlins tax there of you know they have such a poor track record with signing players and then shipping them out the next season, uh, where they maybe have to push a little harder and they didn't have a great year in 2021 and and so maybe they have to overpay a little bit to get guys to go there. Yeah, but it still it felt it felt high. Uh, Avisel Garcia is is a bit of a younger free agent himself as well. It feels like he's been around forever, but I don't I think he's under 30 still. He's just 30. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, but he's a quality player on both sides of the ball, and I think that's been a little bit overlooked because he was so hyped as a prospect. He was the next Miguel Cabrera, and he he never turned into the next Miguel Cabrera. Uh, but he's been a pretty quality player, and and you know they're gonna depending on how the rest of this offseason goes for the Marlins, they might be playing him in center field, which is something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much I would trust him there full time, but I don't know. It seems like a good fit for the team. Uh, it just it just cost a little bit more than anyone really expected. Yeah, I mean, so here's an interesting thing. So, um, on paper, our model has him worth 49.6 over four years, and he's getting 52. However, uh, we also make an adjustment sometimes for sort of defensively challenged guys because we find that the market sometimes discounts for that. And obviously, I'll had some defensive challenges up until the last two years. His defensive numbers were pretty weak in fact in negative territory if you look at fan graphs but the last two years he's kind of turned that around so then the question becomes do you is he really that bad in in the field did he change something can that be changed i thought that was pretty you know steady so um if you don't discount for that then it's pretty fair um so i think that's the only other sort of question now you know the other question you have to pose is if he were traded would 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 you know would people discount for that sort of distrust, if you will, of the defense? Maybe. Depends on the team, I suppose. So it's it's not that far off of an overpay, depending on how you look at the defense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. All right. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the Cardinals signed Steven Matz. This was a four-year, $44 million deal, which, again, it felt like an extra year than anybody really expected for Matz to receive. Um, people were kind of thinking him in the three years, $30 million type range uh, because he's no longer has that upside that he might have had as a prospect. He's kind of settled in as a back-end-ish arm, mid-to-back-end. Uh, but the Cardinals are willing to pay a decent price for those reliable innings every season. 
Um, it, it, he had his struggles in 2020, and he was part of that article that I mentioned earlier, that John mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, that I wrote um, about the Blue Jays, and, and really I narrowed it down to his pitch usage, and it seemed like the Blue Jays really you know sorted that out, and he had a pretty successful season for them. Uh, but four years, 44 million was still a lot more than most people expected. Uh, so what did the value say? It's pretty close. You know, it's all in all, it's right. We have him at 38.2 over four years. And he's gotten paid 44 per year basis. In other words, he's getting, what, 11, and we mm-hmm. are saying 10. <laughs> so, so it's pretty close. Um, you know, and to your point, he really turned it around. I remember last year we were talking about his trade to the Blue Jays and how little, you know, the Mets got back because he was – I think we had him valued in surplus in terms of like he was in the low single digits, right? Two, three, yeah. four, somewhere in there. Yeah. So all he got back was a couple of fringy guys. So, um, and he really turned it around. Now he's, you know, he's got, you know, he was almost a QO candidate. So uh, good for mm-hmm. him. But yeah, it's a fair deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. This one, I think this is, yeah, this is our last free agent deal. And it's just, <laughs> it's not a big name one. It's just one I wanted to bring up and, and see what the, what the thinking here was, the White Sox re-signed Larry Garcia to a three-year deal. Three years, $16.5 million. Um, that just kind of caught me off guard. I mean, he's not a bad player, and, and clearly they like him. They like his versatility, but weird? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I had the same reaction, but then when I looked at the numbers, I'm like, oh, okay. I had no idea. This <laughs> one is right on. In terms of our money, our model says he's worth 16.6. He got 16.5. So I'm like, really? Okay. Well, when you dig into it, he's like, oh, he's better than I thought he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's there's no adjustments here. He's, you know, he's a roving sort of utility guy, um, mm-hmm. you know, but he doesn't do anything badly. Um, and he's mm-hmm. coming off a two-war season that um, if you kind of look at his career, that was probably, that was the best year of his career. Uh, he's mm-hmm. an at Better than average. Well, I wouldn't say better than average. He's an average hitter. He had a 98 WRC mm-hmm. plus last year was 107. So, um, but you know, he's just sort of found his groove as a kind mm-hmm. of a useful two-ish player at best, and that has value. You know, it's yeah. five million a year value basically. It's better than I thought. So okay. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a average to slightly below average hitter. Uh, but he's got a little bit of speed and he'll fill in in all these different positions and teams really like to have that guy on their team, the the super utility, the Ben Zobris type. Mm-hmm. That's kind of become a staple on most rosters these days. Mm-hmm. And so if you like the one that you have, why, why spend a season or two looking for a new one when you can just keep the one that you got? All right. That's all of the free agents that we're going to talk about this time. There's so many deals that we had to pass over. Uh, just because there were just so many deals signed in the last couple of weeks, but I think we hit most of the big ones. Yeah, and, and... just a general point, uh, we're, mm-hmm. I'm not seeing anything that jumps out at me so, that says, oh my God, the market has totally shifted. We got to change our model because we're under on all these guys. Uh, I'm not there. I, I think there's justifiable overpays at the top end by teams that really wanted to make a statement. That's mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing so far. But then as we got, as we just noted in the middle tier, things are fine. So mm-hmm. uh, you haven't, haven't seen any evidence that the market is totally nuts. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Now let's head into, there were just a handful of trades. I was disappointed. I was hoping for, you know, kind of last <laughs> burst of deadline type action before we, you know, get to sit on our hands for the next couple of months. But we got a, We got a few fun ones here. Uh, let's start off with probably the, one of the larger profile deals. 
And this one was right before the buzzer. The Brewers acquired Hunter Renfro, outfielder from the Boston Red Sox. We had Renfro at $1.6 million in median trade value. In exchange, they sent the Red Sox outfielder Jackie Bradley Jr. at negative 12.8. And infield prospects David Hamilton at 5.4 and Alex Benelis at 4.9. So the deal was accepted by our model as a moderate overpay by Boston because uh, they were still slightly in the negative on the value that they received just because Bradley, Jackie Bradley Jr.'s contract is so underwater. But it seems like they were really making a concerted effort to improve their outfield defense. And Hunter Renfro was a gold glove candidate, kind of. He, he was one of the finalists for the position. But that was largely on the back of his outfield assists, which were near the top of the league. But he also made the most errors, I believe, of any right fielder. And, you know, errors, antiquated stat. But uh, by defensive run, sta- run saved, he was about an average defender. Uh, outs above average, DRS below average. And so they wanted to make a defensive upgrade here. And JBJ isn't quite the outfield defender he used to be, but he is certainly an upgrade there. Uh, he gives them a left-handed bat to kind of add to the mix. And obviously it's a, it's a homecoming for him. And, and, you know, he's been a horrible, <laughs> he was a horrible hitter uh, for the Brewers this last season. And so there's got to be some hope there that the Red Sox can kind of turn that around, make him at least a useful bench type player. A defensive replacement type, but the, really the meat of the deal for them is adding Hamilton and Benelis, who are two quality mid-range prospects uh, to their system. And then on the Brewers' end, they get out of that bracket, the Jackie Bradley Jr. Con- uh, contract and add some pretty impressive right-handed power in Renfro. Yeah, this is an interesting deal, I think. First of all, because they snuck it in right before the deadline. Yeah. Um, and just from a timing perspective. Um, so start with Hunter Renfro. We have him at um, his field value at 9.2. He's scheduled to make 7.6 in arbitration uh, based on Matt Swartz's numbers from LBTR. So 9.2 minus 7.6, he's got 1.6. So a little bit of surplus value, not that much. And the way the model works is he, you know, he's in his second arbitration year. So next year he'll get paid even more theoretically, and he might be a non-tender. So you're really, even though he's got two control years, you're really only looking at one probably. Um, and at this point in his career, you know, he's a right-handed hitter who mashes lefties. Um, so they use him a lot in platoon situations. You mentioned the defense is still good, but he's really a short side platoon guy. And that's the way he's been used for the most part in the last couple of years. So we sort of discount for that. <clears throat> so he's got a little bit of surplus value, still very much a useful player, not a superstar, but useful. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I found it interesting that um, David Stearns, you know, the lead executive of the Brewers, I think basically just sort of punted and said, okay, blew it <laughs> on the Bradley signing. Like when we first made that signing, I was like, huh? Because he was clearly in decline. His bat's been going, you know, south for the last couple of years. You know, I, defensively, sure, you can make a case that he's still got, he hasn't lost a step as much, but the bat is really the issue there. He just can't hit anymore. So now at this point, he's a fourth outfielder who was way overpaid. Stearns is a smart GM, and he or smart, um, what is his title now? President of Baseball person. Anyway, something um, like that. He doesn't usually make those kinds of mistakes, but he admitted to this kind of mistake by basically saying, "Okay, I need to get out of it." And then to top it off, because that value was so negative, throwing in two interesting prospects, both mid-tier prospects, 
Now, from the Red Sox perspective, from Heim Bloom's perspective, it's like, ooh, prospects. Yeah, I'm still trying to build my farm. <laughs> yeah, great. Hey, that's, that's basically I, that's my first impression. Because, you know, when he, he took the job, he inherited a pretty weak farm in Boston. And he's been very sort of cold and calculated about, like, okay, I'm not going to trade the good ones. And, in fact, I don't think he's traded hardly any of them. And, mm-hmm. um, and he's trying to rebuild the farm while competing. Kind of the same trick that Farhan Zaidi is doing in San Francisco. Doesn't want to touch the farm. He wants to actually keep building the farm. So when he sees an opportunity, hey, to get more two prospects, so, and he's got a little budget to play with. Okay, I'll buy that. And, you know, and then you have the added bonus of Bradley can still play defense at least as a fourth outfielder, if not a hitter. So I can see it from that point of view. And you know, keep in mind, Bloom had Renfro, I believe, when he was in Tampa, um, and he knew that. So with that comes kind of familiarity that he knows, kind of what his ceiling is, what his limitations are. And I think he knows, okay, he's a useful player, but he's a, you know, short side platoon hitter. So I think he fig- he figured, okay, all in all, it's, you know, I- I'm going to value the prospects here. I can probably replace that right-handed bat with something else. So it made sense from his point of view as well. Yeah, and then for the Red Sox, they're pretty comfortably over the luxury tax already, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. And so it would take a whole lot of maneuvering to get them under there. So it seems pretty a given that they're going to be over the tax. So at that point, what's a couple extra million that you're adding in this deal uh, for Jackie Bradley Jr. If you're also adding those prospects. And if you think you might be able to get a little bit of value out of JBJ anyway. So uh, they, they still have a lot of moves to make the Red Sox. They obviously missed out on all the top starting pitchers on the free agent market. And they could probably use to add one or two starters. They picked up uh, Michael Waka and Rich Hill, and two also former Rays, though though not under Heim Bloom's tenure. Um, and they also signed James Paxton to an interesting deal, uh, but he's likely not going to be ready until the second half of 2022 at the earliest. So they could still use one or two starting pitchers. And so maybe you figure, uh, not with these guys specifically necessarily with Hamilton and Benalis, but you know add some prospect depth and maybe after the lockout they hit the trade market and add mm-hmm. a starter or two there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now he's been, cons- you know, he has a pattern. It's a very sort of value conscious sort of, mm-hmm. you know, surgical sort of patterns, right? He's, he's, he's not a splurge kind of guy. At least I haven't seen him do it yet. Um, he's from the raise mold, definitely of sort of build it value, build it value, you know, and slowly and steadily mm-hmm. you get there. <clears throat> the difference is he's doing that with Chris Sale and yeah. Xander Bogarts and Raphael <laughs> Devers all yeah. locked up under contract for yeah. the foreseeable future. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on to the next big deal. Uh, the Marlins acquired catcher Jacob Stallings. I'm pulling up the values right now. I have to scroll back a little bit. Uh, the Marlins acquired catcher Jacob Stallings at $8.8 million in median trade value from the Pittsburgh Pirates in exchange for right-handed pitchers Zach Thompson at $5.9 million and Kyle Nicholas at $1.7 million, as well as outfielder Connor Scott at $2.1 million. So this deal was accepted pretty fair. Stallings has been a trade candidate um, for the last few months, especially noting how how weak of a catching market it was in free agency and on the trade market, um, and he was he had a decent offensive season with a great defensive reputation. And the Marlins have needed a catcher for a while now. Jorge Alfaro just was not cutting it for them, uh, so they they really needed a reliable guy to put behind the plate for you know 120 games a year. And Stallings is going to be that guy, and he's a great defensive reputation. Like I said, he's going to be working with a pretty young pitching staff in Miami and they just have plenty of young talent still coming up through the farm. So it makes sense that they can afford to part with Thompson and Nicholas and, and even Scott, they also have plenty of outfield depth on the farm. So it makes a lot of sense in terms of kind of what the Marlins needed and what the Marlins had to give up. 
And then also on the Pirates end, they're just in prospect accumulation mode. And, you know, Thompson's an interesting major league ready pitcher. And the other two add to a pretty deep Pirates farm now from all these trades they've made the last couple of years. Yeah, I just I love this trade because it makes so much yeah. sense for both sides, you know, and it's fair. It's 8.8 against 9.7. And so, you know, you could quibble about the tiny difference, but it's pretty mm-hmm. much fair as far as I can see. I mean, Stallings, um, I like Stallings a lot because he's just like he's like a, a good sort of hardworking guy. He seems to have his head on straight, you know, and you can, he's very reliable. He was out of options, so he's kind of a late bloomer. Um but he, because he's 32 already and he's out of options, he you know we we know that catchers tend to have shorter shelf lives, so people wonder well, like why wasn't he higher? And that's largely why because well first of all his bat is not great, it's below average. But then again that's true for most catchers. So what you're really getting is defense first guy, Gold Glove catcher. Um, and if he but if he starts to sort of decline at age 33, 34, if the knees start going bad or whatever, and he's out of options, you know you gotta keep in mind you know you're not going to have much else you know he's a potential dfa in a year or two so you can't go too high with his value because of that um so he delivered a nice package i thought to pittsburgh and this is right up to anyway i've been a fan i've mentioned zach thompson in some earlier episodes of this podcast when he started to hit my radar I'm like whoa where'd that guy come from you know he came from indie ball and you know he's like he was he had some other career going but then he figured out a, a, an out pitch and then suddenly his career took off and you know so he's got some value now um and the other two were just sort of like lower level prospects. Connor Scott is interesting because he was a former first rounder, but just hasn't quite lived up to that reputation. So his, his stock has fallen, although I'm hearing he's a little, he's starting to pick it up a little bit. So there may be some hope for him. So they got a little bit of a, they got, they've got, I think Thompson is going to be a useful pitcher for them. I, whether they use him as a starter or reliever, I'm guessing maybe like a middle rotation starter. Um, Nicholas, who knows, he's a pitching prospect. We'll see how that turns out. Scott's got a little bit of upside because of his pedigree. So it's a good deal for Pirates. I can't, I can't um, argue with it. I will say it's interesting that, you know, there was a lot of chatter on Twitter about Stallings going to the Yankees, but that wasn't from any reliable source. It was just fans saying, yeah, we've got to get Stallings. And so they're upset that they didn't get him because they're not happy with Gary Sanchez, but that's a whole other story. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting, though, that, that um, these teams, like the Yankees, who might need a catching upgrade, still haven't moved yet. Yeah, it seems like they've kind of run out of options unless Wilson Contreras is getting traded. There was a report from, actually it's been multiple reports at this point, from Ken Rosenthal saying that Sean Murphy of the A's might be available. If so, he's pretty much the clear top catching catcher available on the market right now. Years of control, talent, age, all of that considered. So he's not going to come cheap for any of these teams. Um, but yeah, the, the catching market's pretty thin now. It's It's... Obviously, there's only so many guys for so many spots, and the Marlins got their guy. But yeah, it makes you kind of wonder what those other teams are going to do. Um, I, I saw a lot of consternation, frustration from Pirates fans after this trade of, oh, you know, Stallings still had a few years of control left. And if they're trading him, then what's the plan here? Are we, Is he just the next domino before they trade Brian Reynolds and Brian Hayes and everybody else that's good? And they just keep trading everybody <laughs> forever? And I don't think that's the case at all. I think no. you made a really good point that his value was never going up from here and it already wasn't that high because of his age. And because, you know, he's a glove first catcher. If, if the bat falls a little bit, then he's a backup only type. If the glove falls a little bit, then he's barely a big leaguer. So really you, you get the most you can for him right now. And what they ended up doing was they traded him and they went out and signed Roberto Perez to a one-year deal and basically, you know, similar production behind the plate. Obviously Perez has had some, real offensive struggles lately and he's not going to be you know stallings was like a 90 wrc plus average hitter for a catcher type 
and Perez isn't going to be anywhere near that, most likely. But, you know, the Pirates don't need that. They need somebody who can handle a pitching staff and help, you know, teach their young catch or their young catchers in the system. You know, Henry Davis, they just drafted, teach him how to catch it at spring training, help him out. Roberto, Roberto Perez will be good for that. And also for handling the young pitching staff and kind of teaching them how to pitch from the catcher's perspective. And so it makes a lot of sense on both ends. I'm with you. I just like this trade a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a perfect fit on both ends. Agreed. All right. Moving on from that one, the Mariners acquired utility player Adam Frazier from the Padres. Uh, so we had Frazier at $0.8 million in medium trade value. And in exchange, they sent the Padres outfielder Corey Rosier at $1.4 million and left-handed pitcher Ray Kerr at $0.6 million. So it was accepted by our model. $0.8 million headed to the Mariners and Frazier, and then $2 million in surplus headed to the Padres for those two prospects. Frazier seemed like he was on his way out of uh, San Diego from the second the offseason started. I mean, he was a bit of a weird deadline acquisition anyway for a team that was already pretty crowded, and he really struggled in San Diego. didn't help his case much there. And they have a lot of budget issues right now. Uh, it just didn't make sense for them to keep on his uh, decently high arbitration estimate. Uh, yeah, he's projected to make $7.2 million. And, and that's not a ton, but that's more than made sense for the Padres to hang on to for a guy that was really just a bench player for them. Uh, but the Mariners will give him a chance to get a lot of at-bats. Um, again, probably all over the field because that's where he gets his most value. But he's pretty penciled in at second base right now, pending the rest of Seattle's moves. Uh, but it just makes a lot of sense. You know, like we mentioned, the Mariners are ready to take a step forward. If they can get a guy who had such a strong first half with the Pirates and has previously been a, a productive, useful player on, on contending type teams, if they can get a guy like that for pretty cheap, might as well go do it. Yeah, I mean, this one makes sense. Again, um, we've talked a lot about Adam Fraser's valuation a lot. He was kind of the card carrying case for like, oh my gosh, good second baseman are not getting paid. Uh, him and a few others anyway. Um, and this is another example of, you know, their value as a second baseman is discounted by the market. So we knew that already now because we've our model is now adjusted to it. So which is why when we had him at like 0 0.8 or whatever over his 7.2 million is already getting. And that's pretty much what he delivered in prospects close enough. So, um, but from a position standpoint, yes, Seattle needed a second baseman. Done. It's only for one year, which is interesting because they have, I think, a longer term plan in mind. So maybe they extend him, maybe they see how it does. I don't know. But for one year, sure, give him a try. Uh, San Diego, as you mentioned, but it's starting to get tight. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, he was expendable. And they've got some other middle infielders, so they can move guys around. So it seems like ever since that trade happened, I'm like, what? Where are they going to play him? So. You know, it didn't make as much sense. So I think they finally just it threw in the towel and said, okay, that wasn't dumb. That was dumb. Things <laughs> probably didn't didn't fit there. Um, so, you know, and they've got a long way to go to restore their, their farm because they sold so much. They traded so much of it away. Uh, but these two guys are probably not, they're not, they're not high level prospects at all. You know, one's a reliever and the other one is a long way away. I think a recent draft pick. So, um, but he's got kind of a lower level for profile. So, Bottom end of the farm gets restored. Maybe the you know, raker I think, has a really interesting sort of reliever profile. So maybe these, they get some use out of him. So it makes sense from both sides. Yeah, these are two teams who are going to be really interesting to watch after the lockout. The Padres, you know, they need to take a step forward. I mean, it seems like the Dodgers have taken a step back this offseason. And you could argue that the Giants have as well, you know, losing Posey and losing Gosman and just kind of replacing him with Alex Cobb. Uh, but the Padres really have their sights set higher than they finished in 2021. And so they need to do something. They need to make some improvements. But as you mentioned, you know, budget's tight and the farm isn't what it used to be. So it's going to be interesting to see how 
creative Preller and Co. can get. Uh, that's that's going to be one of the top teams to watch after the lockout. And then the Mariners as well. You know, they're not done. They added Robbie Ray. They added Adam Frazier here. They're pretty locked in at J.P. Crawford at shortstop, so I don't think they're adding Carlos Correa or anything, but they've been connected to Trevor Story, move him to third base. They've been connected to all of the A's potentially available players, all their starters, Matt Chapman. They could all make sense there. Uh, so I think they still got a lot in the tank. As we mentioned, their farm is bursting at the seams at this point. They, they got some talent that they can afford to move, and they're right on the cusp, and they're ready to stop losing. So I, I think they're... They're both really interesting teams to watch after the lockout is done. Yeah, and I also think it's notable that some of the heavy hitters have been quiet. It feels like it's like yeah. the poker room in the back is like they're, they're, they haven't had the big money table start yet. Like when these guys come <laughs> in, you know, it's been sort of the yeah. middle guys doing most of the poker plan. And now like, OK, mm-hmm. here's the high rollers over here. They haven't started yet. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks to some of the, you know, pressure to get something done for some of yeah, those teams, right. you know, uh, that, I mean, not to say that the Yankees can get away with doing nothing up until the, <laughs> to the lockout. And now all their fans are going to be upset the next couple of months, but it seemed like the Mets really couldn't afford to sit around and do nothing and wait. Uh, the Rangers, if they were going to make a splash, they had to get, get their guys before they were scooped up by other teams, you know, but, but a team like the Mariners that has a pretty good situation going and, and everyone in the league is going to want their prospects and they really weren't ever in the market for any of those top, top guys. Anyway, it makes sense for them to kind of sit back and let things develop. And, you know, maybe we get to a point where the lockout ends pretty shortly before spring training, John Fisher's saying, Nope, we got to slash payroll got to do it now and you know they their A's are forced into making a trade a little quicker than they'd like to and the Mariners can be on the benefiting end of that so no no harm for them really especially since they got their top guy it seems like in Robbie Ray and they got another interesting piece here in Frazier there's no real harm in them kind of sitting back and letting things develop Fair point. all right Going back to the Marlins, they acquired utility player Joey Wendell at $4.4 million in medium trade value from the Rays in exchange for outfielder Cameron Misner at $7.0 million. Trade is accepted by our model as a minor overpay by Miami, so there is a bit of a gap there. Um, and part of that gap comes from Wendell being a, a second baseman, and we've, we've talked about that. Uh, on this episode as well as in the past about how we've had to adjust second baseman and Wendell plays all over the field, but he's a primary second baseman and he's got a good glove, but he's kind of a, uh, I, I somewhat incorrectly referred to him as a glove first player in our tweet on this. And I was, I got some quick pushback saying that he's been an above average platoon bat, but even still, you know, that's a platoon bat at second base primarily. So that that's not the most in demand uh, asset we've seen on the market in recent years. And so we have adjusted him down as, as a result of that. Um, but even even with that adjustment, it's still accepted by the model. It's just a slight overpay by Ant Miami, and, and it's just one prospect. So, you know, if, if the prospect updates come out throughout the offseason and Misner's ranked a little lower than he used to be, suddenly it looks like a pretty even deal. So it's, it's well within the realm yeah. of of margin of error and, and so it, it makes sense you know the marlins are continuing to add these kind of interesting pieces all around their roster i think they want to contend next year but they're not going to do anything crazy for it um and, and as i mentioned earlier they have kind of a glut of outfield prospects so might as well move some of these guys before you get into a roster crunch situation yeah i think road. it's a good point i also think they are sort of tired of losing another one of these teams that is going to start making some moves 
Um, they've been rumored to be active. They were trying to get Starling Marte back. They, uh, you know, I, I think some have some other fish in the in the kettle as well in terms of upcoming trades after the lockout ends because they've got a position of strength with starting pitching. They've got one of the rare teams who has more starting pitching that they can handle, and it's really good. They got Trevor Rogers and Sandy Alcantara, who they, by the way just extended, you know, and so and a few other interesting ones. So they've got some some pieces there that they can play with and to fill some of the other holes. This one was just a sort of, I think, relatively lower level priority to fill like a useful player in the infield in exchange for a sort of a prospect that, you know, may be blocked at some point. So it made sense for the Marlins. And, you know, the Rays were always moving guys who were, you know, getting shorter on their years of control and more expensive. And by the way, they've got Franco and they've got Walls and they've got plenty of infielders. So he's expendable from the Rays' point of view as well. And the Rays are always trying to get a, you know, re you know, reshuffle based on next man up. Oh, I don't have to add him to the 40 for a while. So Mr. fits that profile. So it just made sense all around. Yep. It, it fits the pretty cut and dry raise formula that we've seen in mm-hmm. recent years. And so makes sense. Um, want to wrap up the Marlins here. So they also, uh, I should have mentioned this earlier after they acquired Stallings, they shipped Jorge Alfaro off to the Padres in exchange for cash considerations or a player to be named later. We had Alfaro at 0.7 million in median trade value. So right on that kind of non-tender bubble. And he was pretty out of favor in Miami. You know, he wasn't doing it either behind the plate or at the plate for them. They started toying with him in the corner outfield spots down the, down the stretch last season. Um, just really never figured it out for them. But he was a Rangers prospect uh, when Preller was in Texas. And so there's that connection there. We know how much A.J. Preller loves to get his guys back. Makes things a little bit weird in San Diego uh, because they already had Victor Caratini and Austin Nola behind the plate. And, you know, Nola has a little bit of versatility, but he has his most value as a catcher. Uh, so it's it's going to be interesting to see how the, those three shape out. If one of them might be on the move, maybe they trade Caratini to save a little bit of money or something. I'm not sure. But uh, just kind of wrapping up the Marlins here with this, this minor deal. They also uh, DFA'd Lewis Brinson. And I'll use this as an opportunity to plug John's latest article. We'll be discussing it at length in a future episode, but he went and took, as we've discussed and kind of alluded to for a while now, he finally went out and did it. (laughs) He did a trade retrospective on the Christian Yelich trade, looking at what the values might have looked like at the time of the deal, whether it was a fair deal at the time and where things have gone since then. Highly recommend it. Lots of fun. We've gotten a lot of good feedback on it already. If you haven't seen it already, it'll be linked in the show notes and uh, yeah, Lewis Brinson, obviously a big part of that deal and end of an era for him in Miami being designated for assignment last yeah, week. Yeah, it's just sad. I mean, it's no surprise to anybody, including Marlins fans, but obviously that one was yeah. a bust, so you just got to move on. Yep. Um, Cut your losses. Yeah, exactly, unfortunately for them. Um, I just want to make one last point about Alfaro. I don't get it from the Padres' perspective. Mm-hmm. You made the point about Preller having a connection to him, which I, I it happens a lot. Preller has his favorites, you know, yeah. whether it's Profar or whoever. Um, but, you know, sometimes he gets his, lets his heart, you know, get the better of him instead of his head. And I think this is another mm-hmm. one of those cases. Like, he's not giving up much, frankly, but whatever. But, like, from mm-hmm. a roster point of view, like, where do you put him? Like, you've got, you know, don't forget Camposano is one of your top prospects, and you still haven't found mm-hmm. room to play him yet. So now you got four catchers. Like, so then it raises the question, okay, maybe you move Nola to first base, but then you've got Hosmer, who they can't seem to get rid of. So, like, and then other, is it, yeah, I don't know. Now, it's not it's not yeah. a big deal because Alfaro wasn't worth much. So maybe you're just going to see if he fits somewhere and if not, whatever. But I, I just don't get it. On that point, though, we have 
Caratini estimated to earn two million in arbitration, and Alfaro estimated to earn two point seven. So, even if you are trading Caratini elsewhere, it seems like you're downgrading from a player perspective, but spending more money on a team that can't really afford to do yeah. that. I'm not sure. We'll have to see where that shakes out after the lockout. Yeah. All right, last trade. This one's pretty minor. Uh, it was the D-backs acquired outfielder Jordan Leplo from the Rays. He had him at one point one million in median trade value. In exchange for second baseman Ronnie Simon, we had it 0.2. It's accepted by our model. Obviously, there's a bit of a gap there, but it's within rounding error kind of territory. Uh, Leplo has been traded a couple times. He's a short side platoon bat. Uh, he's it's pretty much outfield only, though he did add a little bit of infield versatility with the Rays down the stretch. He'll be an outfielder for the D-backs. They're pretty left-handed heavy on outfielders right now, so he gives them another option off the bench or to start against lefties. Uh, so it makes sense for them, and, and as we mentioned with the Rays, they're all about clearing these 40-man spots, kind of kicking the can down the road, picking up a prospect that won't have to be added for a couple years, and so it fits their ammo for it sure. It does, but, you know, they picked up Leplo at the trade deadline for a more promising pitcher in Peyton Battenfield, if I yeah. recall. Um, so essentially for them, it's like, okay, we gave up Battenfield for Ronnie Simon, who was like... I don't know. He's, uh, not much prospect capital there. Um, so, um, and we have him at zero point two. He's basically a very fringy prospect. Uh, didn't hit much at the EIA level, um, but you know, we cleared a roster spot. Uh, I'm not going to question the Rays. Uh, they may know more than we do, but it doesn't seem to make sense from sort of the larger perspective of the gap between Battenfield and Simon is bigger than the gap between Leplo and Simon. So. Eh, I guess, you know, I'm squinting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So that's it on trades for the last couple of weeks. And I guess for the next handful of weeks too, that's, that's sad. I don't want to think about that. Uh, Let's, let's, I know we're getting close to the 90 minute mark here. So let's wrap up with the handful of extensions that we saw in these last couple of weeks as well. So uh, we can just kind of go through these pretty quickly. Uh, The first one, the Rays signing Wander Franco to an 11-year extension. We discussed this on the last episode, and we both kind of were in agreement that if it was more than 10 years, there might be some opt-outs there, uh, but there weren't. So it was just a straight 11-year, $182 million extension. Uh, there's a club option for the 20, 2033 season, so that 12th year, and there are plenty of escalators based on MPP voting, so it could max out at $223 million over 12 years. That's obviously significantly less than his surplus value would say he, or excuse me, than his field value would say he would be worth over those 12 years. But that's just kind of the nature of these deals. There's obviously some risk being taken on the raise part, you know, if he doesn't hit those marks. Uh, but but it seems like a pretty safe deal on their end. And on Franco's end, I mean, you're <laughs> you're 20 years old. You've played less than a full season, and you're being shown almost 200 million dollars right in front of you. It's hard to say no to and it's nowhere near the you know the Ozzy Albies deal or the Ronald Acuna deal even which got a lot of flack for being so team friendly so aggressively team friendly to the point where it felt like they were taking advantage of the players this is nowhere near that and and I think uh, especially because Wander Franco is an insane talent but he doesn't necessarily feel like the type of guy that'll you know, tap into these repeated eight, nine win seasons. He seems like he's a high, high floor type that'll probably max out around, you know, five or six wins a year because he's not a huge power guy. He's just going to be a great on base guy. He's going to play a lot of positions, add in a few homers, a few steals, but 
it, it seems like his ceiling it's it's crazy to say for a guy that might <laughs> hit it well above 300 for the rest of his career but it seems like his ceiling is a little bit limited compared to a guy like Acuna even or a Tatis or anything like that where those guys could pop off with a 50 homer year and, and be a nine win player um, so it maybe makes some more sense uh, from that angle as well okay so um, yeah, this one basically splits the difference, I think, more so than the Acuna and Albies deals do, because those were very team-friendly, to your point there. I think they were player-unfriendly. This one is not as unfriendly to the player. It, it definitely, you know, <laughs> that's serious life-changing money he's getting. But if our numbers and projections, and it's not just us, it's others as well, like Dan Saborski and Zips and whatever, you know, he's a consistent 2.5-ish war player for, you know, he's going to hit, you know, most players hit their prime at age 26, 27, 28. He's only 21 now. So that's when you want to sign him, when they're really young and they're on the upswing and you're going to get even more value out of the deal. So for all of those reasons, you know, we've got him fair value at like 527 over 12 years. And he's getting paid, you know, assuming the options picked up 226 or so. So that's 301 in surplus value, which is, I'm laughing because it's so ridiculous. He's already number two in our list of surplus value, highest to lowest, <laughs> you know, right behind Tatis, who has a similar contract and leaving. So you could argue in one hand, yes, he's leaving a lot of money on the table. We've had the discussion before. On the other hand, he's getting paid life-changing money. So they're meeting in the middle. Mm-hmm. If, if it's on the one hand, if if he is the player that we expect him to be, then he'll earn $223 million over the next 12 years, and he'll hit the free agent market at age 32, 33 for the first time. And at that point, you know, maybe he's not a shortstop anymore. Maybe he's a second baseman, but he's a switch hitter with a plus bat. He'll he'll earn, a, a, you know, a four- or five-year deal at that point if he's the player that we expect him to be. So so he's got more coming. It might be a four- or five-year deal in the $100 million range, so he might end up with over $300 million in career earnings. If he's not the player we expect him to be, then it's a good thing he took this deal because he's getting $223 million locked in, or not the full 223 right now, but he's getting the 182 locked in right now, no matter what happens. So, yep. Yeah. It, he could, he could break a leg and not be the same. Let's look at that. Moment. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so many other changes could happen within the game in this time span that make things, you know, more difficult for a player like him or, either better or worse for free agency, especially with this deal happening right before the lockout, right before some expected changes in the CBA. So, I mean, you're taking the money and running. (laughs) You can't, you can't say he did the wrong thing here. No matter, no matter what way you look at it, you can say maybe he left some money on the table. Maybe he could have held out for a little bit more. Maybe you could say all these maybes, but you could also say it's the raise. Maybe this is really the one time he was going to have this opportunity to earn this money from this team. And if he, he likes the organization that much, he should jump on it. And, and maybe if he bets on himself for another year, maybe he's officially out of the raise price range and he just instantly becomes a trade candidate. So, yeah, there is another angle that I thought about when I was walking the dog the other night is that, <laughs> you know, Florida, I don't think has, I think has much more favorable taxes. So he's going to get more net out of it. That's one point. Number two is because of that, if he's, smarter with his money and he actually saves and invests well that money will start to accrue and because of the appreciation on those investments you know that money that's a lot of money to invest if he if he's smart about it he doesn't like spend like crazy you know his portfolio will grow to the point almost where he's not actually you know losing out on on Mm -hmm. opportunity cost he he actually might be making it up in other words with investments so because he's getting paid earlier than he would have six years from now you know yeah so i can see a case for that 
yeah, not not to get too highly speculative, but the breakdown of the contract, he gets the five million bonus up front and a million in twenty twenty two, and that's compared to he's probably gonna get whatever the new league minimum is, and that could change with the CBA, but it was on track to be worth about six hundred thousand mm-hmm. um in twenty twenty two. So he's already, you know, more than five million ahead of schedule here. And then he's getting two million in each of twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four. And those are again, those were gonna be league minimum years in the six hundred thousand range probably. So and obviously a lot of that stuff, you know, I'm not expecting him to invest everything right away. You know, he's got a family to take care of and he's going to celebrate and whatever, but that is a good point. Like with the way that this contract is structured, it's going to pay him 8 million for his first arbitration year, 15 for his second, 22 for his third. I don't know if he necessarily would have hit that in arbitration if he was more of one of those accumulator types. That's not hitting 30, 40 homers a year. So I, 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 that's a good point that he's getting this money sooner than he would have otherwise. And if he's handles it correctly, he could <laughs> earn a yeah. lot more in, in the long term. Yeah. The, the one other uh, point I wanted to make here is that there is no, no trade clause in this contract. And so it, this isn't necessarily an entire commitment for the raise to this 11 or 12 year deal. Um, he, th- we've seen them extend Evan Longoria and trade him. They extended Chris Archer and traded him. They extended Blake Snell and traded him. So th- this isn't this isn't Wander Franco being for sure locked in a Rays uniform for the next 12 years. Right. But it at least kicks the can down the road, and it's at least nice that Rays fans can go out and, and buy a Wander Franco jersey and not be too concerned for at least the next handful of years. Yeah, there you go. All right. Speaking of potential trade candidates, if they hadn't signed their extension, Byron Buxton and the Twins finally came together on a seven-year contract extension, $100 million. Uh, Buxton's a really hard player to value because, you know, he's obviously superstar-level talent when he's healthy, but he's just he's never healthy. <laughs> and so they had to get really creative with this deal, and I really love it for both ends here. It's really going to pay him what he's worth, essentially. And, and there's there's an asterisk there of, you know, the way that it's that the incentives are based are all around MVP voting. And so if Buxton wins MVP in any season of this deal, he earns $8 million, which is insane. It's an unprecedented level of awards bonuses. And then it scales down for if he finishes second, third, anywhere down to 10th. If he finishes between sixth and 10th place, he'll earn an extra $3 million for that year. Uh, but I think it makes a lot of sense because the team is betting by extending him that when he's healthy, he's going to be a star player. And Buxton is saying, hey, I'm going to be healthy, so I want you to pay me when I am a star player. So it works. And there's also some plate appearance incentives. And it's just it's seven years, $100 million, which seems a little light for a player of his talent. But with the incentives, if he's on the field enough and if he's playing at the level he has over the last couple of years, he's going to earn the money that he deserves. Maybe, maybe he still ends up a little bit shy of it if he does end up being a superstar that stays healthy for the next seven years, but I don't think that's pretty likely. So I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty safe deal on both ends, to be honest. Yeah. I like it too. Um, you know, we got a lot of questions when we had his surplus value at 14 or so um, mm-hmm. when he had one year left on his, you know, previous uh, arbitration issue. Um, and people thought, Oh, that should be much higher. And I kept saying, well, he hasn't played a full season since what, 2017. You know, I mean, you've got to look at the reality here. And the rumors at the time were um, that uh, the Twins, in an earlier sort of negotiation, had offered him, I think, $70 million or so over a few years. You know, so it was clear that they also had to take that into consideration. And now that they finally agreed on this extension, seven years, 100 as a baseline, it also sort of confirms that 
you know, that's that was a big part of their calculations as it was in ours. So when I crunch the numbers on this one, it works out to about a 40% discount um, in terms of health. Uh, the injury risk, in other words, is such that you're only getting about 60, 60 cents on the dollar that you otherwise would have. Um, and then the way they structured it with the incentives, as you pointed out, makes it seem like, okay, if he does actually stay healthy, then, you know, he actually makes it to that elite level of performance over the course of a year, then yeah, absolutely, we would reward that. So it's perfect, I think. It's the perfect contract. On paper, with the sort of standard baseline, it's totally fair. We have it at 103 against 100. And, um, you know, with those incentives, everybody wins. So I can't complain. Yeah, looking at it uh, just a little bit more closely now, the breakdown. So he's going to get $9 million in 2022, and every season after that, 15 so if you're saying if he hits all of his incentives and wins MVP, so he's earned, let's say in 2023 he wins the MVP award and he plays a full healthy season. So he's going to get 500k for each of his five incentive marks, so that's an extra 2.5 million uh, for plate appearances. So that puts him at 17.5 and, and then plus another 8 million for winning MVP. You know, that's we're getting into the territory of he's still underpaid for for an MVP, but that's with all of the risk taken into account there as well and, and you know how likely is it that, that he actually has a 625 plate appearance season and wins mvp i don't know but either way when he is productive and on the field he's going to get a bonus for doing so it seems like so I, I think that's a really good contract from his perspective as a guy who's i'm sure also been frustrated at his inability to stay on the field all yep. right we got two more to get through right here. One of them we mentioned briefly earlier, the Marlins signing Sandy Alcantara to a contract extension. It'll be a $56 million guarantee over five years, and it's the largest contract that has been signed by a pitcher between three and four years of Major League Service, so that's before their uh, first arbitration go-around. Uh, it tops the high-water mark set by Carlos Martinez a few years back when he received five years and $51 million. Uh, but Alcantara seems like a pretty safe bet for it. He had a real breakout year in 2021. He's a really talented pitcher. And as we mentioned before, the Marlins just have their own little pitching machine going on right now. Mm -hmm. And they have all the talent in the world. And it seems like this is one of the guys that since the beginning, they've wanted to just stick at the top of their rotation. And they'll, they'll listen to offers on the other guys, I'm sure. And, and Pablo Lopez is going to get plenty of hits. And Trevor Rogers, I'm not sure if they'll actually trade him. But there's going to be plenty of interest in him and all of their prospects. And but this is the guy that they wanted to keep in town and, and I don't think he's going anywhere. Yeah. It seems a little light. Um, you know, we have his fair value at 131 over the next uh, six years and he's getting 56. Mm -hmm. Now this is another sort of split the difference mode contract, not quite as big obviously as Franco, but, but in a similar sort of vein, he's mm -hmm. getting paid more now guaranteed than he would have in arbitration. Um, but you know, he's leaving some money on the table too. His trade value as a result is about the same as it was before. You know, we had him, at, yeah, I think in the 70s, 60s or 70s, and now it's at 75. So, um, you know, we, as we see with the free agent pitchers, you know, they're getting paid. The good ones are getting paid and mm -hmm. this isn't even adjusting for that. And he's only 25 and he's theoretically got his best years ahead of him. So we may even be understating it if, if, if we're right. So, yeah, he's leaving some money on the table, to be honest. Um, so I'm so a little surprised that it's this low. Um, but at the same time, you know, everybody wins in terms of guaranteed money versus sort of upside. So, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and there's some more inherent risk for a pitcher than there is for a guy like Franco, who's who's been a durable player True. throughout his career. And, and, you know, pitchers are always one bad inning away from their elbow falling off. So. Yeah, right. 
Okay, and then speaking of injured pitchers, <laughs> last <laughs> extension uh, was this one's one of those real early career ones for a reliever. The Mariners extended uh, Andres Munoz, reliever, to a four-year extension worth at least $7.5 million, but with three club options. This one is fairly reminiscent of the A's extending Sean Doolittle a handful of years back. They got him real early in his career. And again, a similar type deal where it had pretty low guarantee, but the club options and the buyouts and all of that. And so they're really just uh, kind of buying out against, you know, the chance that he really blows up and is a stud late inning arm, which is kind of what happened with Doolittle. Obviously there were some injuries there, but he turned into a really reliable back end arm. And so that deal was a great move for the A's and the Mariners are betting on being able to do the same thing with Munoz. Uh, he was a top relief prospect. They acquired him, I believe in the Austin Nola trade uh, yeah. from San Diego. And he was injured for the 2020 season. I'm pretty sure he was rehabbing yeah. Tommy John. Yep. Um, but he's a huge arm, high VLO. I'm pretty sure he made it back in 2021 and, and mm-hmm. was effective for, uh, yeah, he made it. <laughs> he pitched two thirds of an inning and struck out a batter. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. betting real hard on so, those two thirds in an inning of a 0. 0.00 <laughs> ERA. Uh, yeah, you know, he's obviously a big talent, and they're not really risking much here. But there's a uh, high reward option here. Like if he really breaks out, he's still a very young reliever, and he's very high upside. So no no loss deal for the Mariners and for Munoz. He's betting against a future injury that could really end his career. Yeah, and we all know relievers are volatile, so that that could very well happen. And you know. I love this deal for Seattle. It's really sort of tricky to sort of evaluate because there's so little track record to work with here. So, um, you know, but we know he's got great stuff. We've always known that. And just a matter of, you know, him coming back healthy after the Tommy John. So it's a bet on the Mariners side of saying, yeah, we think he's going to be, we think he's just plenty of upside and he's going to be fine. Um, in which case, wow. Yeah, go for it. Um, but we've seen some of these deals kind of flop as well. So, cause we, you know, Relievers are volatile, so he could mm-hmm. turn into the next Juan Lopez or whoever else. You know, name a name a guy who throws a hundred we thought was going to be good, but then didn't. You know, didn't pan out. <laughs> yeah. could very well be that as well. So it's too early to tell. So, but yeah. it's a worthwhile gamble. It's a couple of chips on the table for you know maybe you'll hit big. So we'll see. And we still don't have all the details on this one. We don't know the club option values or potential buyouts or anything like that. Um, but as it stands, it's a four-year deal for seven and a half million dollars. And, you know, how much was he going to earn over those four years? Like we're yeah. saying, even if he was a complete bust, he's going to earn, you know, two or three million over yeah. those four years based on uh, league minimum and arbitration. So it's really only a few million dollar gamble over a four year time span by the Mariners. And mm-hmm. it could really pay off big time. So it makes all the sense in the world from their perspective. Mm-hmm. All right. We have gone a little bit long, so I don't think we'll have time for trades of the week this time. But. You know, depending on how long this lockout goes, we should have plenty of time for them in the coming weeks yeah. um, and, and plenty of time for other content as well. We'll we'll take some time to look forward and see what might happen on the other end of the lockout. We'll take some time to look way, way back. And as I mentioned, we'll look at the, the uh, trade retrospective series that John has been working on. And we will have plenty of coverage over the next couple of months, even if even if we don't have any actual news to hit in that time span. We'll get so you I through the cold winter, folks. Yes, <laughs> and it'll be getting ourselves through the cold winter as well. And I hope you guys <laughs> join us for the ride. So, Sounds good. 
that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean.